the benefit of partnering locally is that you're, you know, anyone can bring in a case of pineapples, you know what I mean, wherever and cook with that. And that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. And some some operations have to do that. But to be able to taste, you know, that term terroir about like the land that you're on, it's, I feel like it's a responsibility because then you're partnering with your local farms, you know, you're supporting these communities and they're, you know, this is the land that we're in, that we live on, that we come from, and that we're also eating the bounty of that. And it's, I just think it's irresponsible to cook any other way. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. There was a time where you had to go to certain cities to enjoy the finest cuisine or what eventually became farm to table. And I've had an opportunity to do that uh, around the country, uh, even around the world. I rode a scooter one time outside of Paris and went to Versailles and had lunch. Well, we're going to go to some place that spells its name the same as Versailles, but it's pronounced Versailles, and it's in Ohio. And from Versailles, Ohio, people are enjoying cuisine and farm-to-table dining that you used to think you had to go to Paris or San Francisco or someplace for. And I'm I'm really happy to welcome Chef Aaron Allen. Chef Allen, welcome to Farm-to-Table Talk. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, there was a time that when you went to smaller cities, let alone villages, You'd find some good home cooking, but certainly not what we were referring to at the time as at farm to table. You're in a community that's pretty close to the Indiana line. You're in Ohio. You're north of Dayton. You're not in a large city. Uh, Versailles, Ohio is not a large city. But you're making some really, really interesting and desirable contributions to the, the whole culinary scene there. Tell me, how'd you get there? This isn't one of those things that you necessarily thought that you were growing up and you'd be back into a, a, a smallish town right. in Ohio and really doing the sorts of things that people used to think they had to go to Manhattan or New Orleans or San Francisco to enjoy. Yeah, I guess the times they are changing, as they say, apparently. But um, yeah, it's 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 definitely not the trajectory that I that I knew that I would be on, but it's definitely one that I'm grateful to to be on now. You know, my coming back to Ohio was it was always something that I wanted to do because, my, you know, I'm from here and my family's here. But the reason uh, that, that that we can be here doing this great food is because of uh, Midmark, uh, who who owns uh, the the hotel here, um, hotel hotel for sales. And as I mentioned in our pre-call, like, you know, there's a great history uh, from, from for this property. There was a, a there's been a hotel operating on this uh, piece of land since 1865. There's not many, uh, not many uh, locations, uh, hospitality operations anywhere that can really say that. Um, and so, you know, we we have a very special, very unique kind of niche operation here, where we're partnered with and uh, our, our farm, Sycamore Bridge, which is an 85-acre farm uh, that that grows every varietal that you can imagine for for our restaurant. Um, and we, you know, we we feed. Uh, the local community uh, surrounding uh, cities. Uh, we've had a lot of guests come through um, in just in our first year of being open. 
um, to, to where we're starting to become, become a destination uh, point for, for, for many travelers and, and, and staycationers on the weekend. And uh, we, we feed mid-mark customer groups as well. So, you know, that's, that's where we have, you know, this, this um, mid-mark's been here since 1915 and they always, uh, They've always you know, had a, had that need, that necessity to 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 feed their uh, their customers, and so there was a the old inn at Versailles, which is the um, you know the, the the property that was here prior to to this iteration, and there was a fire, and it uh, needed to be demolished and rebuilt. So um, yeah, so I mean, and you know, there's there are basically the expectations are are it's a very broad spectrum. So you know, we have the local community. Who we want to feed, and we need to to um, offer, uh, you know, all varieties of of uh, food and beverage, and then we also have customer groups that are coming in that that travel the world that need to be able to experience tasting menus and um, in a more global cuisine. So it's definitely not your uh, not your average uh, restaurant in that sense. Where has your journey taken you? I don't know how much time you and your listeners have, but um, quite quite a few places. Um, I started uh, in Ohio, which is where I'm from. That that was that was the other part of this process was when that opportunity came available to me. It was appealing to be closer to home, closer to family. Um, but no, I know I I started in uh, in Ohio with the James Beard chef Ann Kearney, uh, who was my mentor, and I worked for her for almost five years and cut my teeth uh, in her kitchen. And uh, she she worked with Emerald Gossi in uh, in New Orleans and 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 had a her own restaurant there uh, called Paris Style. Uh, and, uh, that really set me on my, my path. Uh, I, I worked at the, the, um, the, the Forbes five-star, uh, um, Relay and Chateau in Texas, as I mentioned, uh, the Anandos Uh, I worked at, uh, Nemecolon Resort, which has numerous, uh, numerous restaurants, uh, one of their fine dining restaurants. Uh, I worked, uh, at the Ivy in Baltimore, which is another Forbes, uh, Forbes four-star. I worked for Daniel Balud in Manhattan. Uh, uh, was a three Michelin and is now a two Michelin star restaurant. Uh, I was most more recently before this role, the executive chef at the Hotel Covington in Cincinnati. So uh, that was kind of, I started to make my way back towards Ohio, I guess, in that sense. But um, it's it's afforded me the ability to travel and to explore. And that was always part of like who I was and why I was interested in it. And uh, this was, a, a, as I explained you know, earlier, a really unique opportunity with a, with a great company um, and, uh, and a great team of people. And it's, it's proven to be that so far. And so I, I definitely didn't want to pass that up. What made you think you wanted to be a chef? Uh, well, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a hard to pinpoint that I was always one of those kind of weird kids that just loved to put things together before I had any idea what I was doing. Um, but I remember being very young and this is what we might be, I might be discovering this as I'm telling you this, but watching like cooking shows with my dad when I was very young, Julia Child, uh, and, uh, the frugal gourmet. I don't know if you remember that show uh-huh. <laughs> on PBS. Uh, I mean, I just, I, I was always obsessed with it. I, I come from a creative family. My dad was a songwriter. My mom's an art teacher. So I was kind of just natural that I was interested in something different than, you know, maybe your more traditional career path. And, um, I went to, I got my undergraduate degree at Wright State here, uh, jumped to jobs because I wasn't happy. Uh, and even when I was working in administrative roles, I was thinking about cooking and then cooking in my spare time and reading about cooking and watching videos about cooking. And, and yeah, so it was just always an obsession, you know, so they say, do what you love. And I, I always love to cook. So it kind of came around back to that. 
when I got an opportunity to cook with Ann Kearney, um, she had just lost her father and I had lost my father around the same time. And I guess maybe that there might've been like a mutual kinship there because of that. But she gave me an opportunity to cook for her before I, when I really didn't have for her caliber of restaurant, I didn't have that experience that would warrant a role with her. And she gave me a shot and I, I really went hard for that. And so I, and then I was obsessed, you know, at that point and, and so on and just wanted to continue continue to work for the best chefs and the best restaurants and learn everything I could from those people. So that kind of sums it up. Well, that gets to another stage then, and that is sourcing your food. I mean, when you covered the country to the extent that you had from, you know, Texas to Ohio, back to New York and, and all these experiences at, at what stage in your own growth does, uh, does sourcing become more important? Because there was a time where somebody was lining up the foods that you were going to have to work with at the, the basic sources. But at what stage does that become your responsibility? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think that you kind of also just, uh, you know, inadvertently answered one of your earlier questions about like, you know, did I consider myself a, a farm-to-table chef? And 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 how did I come, come to that point? And that's because of, you know, your, your point just now is, when I was a young cook in kitchens, I was handed that product and I understood because I worked for chefs that that impressed that upon me about, you know, taking me to the farms, uh, introducing me to the vendors, obviously just being in the kitchen when the, you know, when the chicken guy, Ed Hill, would come in, in Ohio, everybody that knows chicken in Ohio knows Ed Hill would come and drop them off, you know, so I, I learned that way that that's how the chefs that I worked for cooked and sourced. So then that's how I cooked and sourced. But it becomes my responsibility when I when I have that decision to make. And as soon as I was able to make that decision, then I always wanted to partner locally because, I mean, it's, a, you know, and it, it, there's a lot of cliche to this. You know, people will, will hear me say this, and I've said it many times before, but it's true that, you know, when you, if you've ever had the opportunity to like take an apple off of a tree and, and take a bite of it for the first time, even versus one that's been in a, in a case for, you know, four days, it's, there's no comparison in flavor. And, it, uh, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, I can make that same comparison to to any herb or any vegetable that that you grow. It's 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 a cliche, like a silly commercial, because it's a real thing, and it's it will like knock your socks off to taste that be beautiful, delicious, fresh uh, produce. Um, and so, I mean, as soon as I was in any capacity to make that choice about where we spent our money and who we partnered with from from uh, from get go, for me was uh, was always a decision about partnering locally. And uh, that was an, another one of the to tie it back into the, you know, Silas Kitchen and Hotel for Sales here is like we keep a list, uh, a laundry list of all of our uh, local partners, uh, not just for the restaurant, but for the hotel here. Um, and, you know, we, we you know, we bring we bring in everything for just a few mile radius. Like we're partnered with Winners Meats. Uh, we bring in all of the all of the Black Angus beef and the Berkshire pork from them. Uh, Weaver's eggs, all of our eggs, all of our uh, all of our. Uh, poultry from King's Brothers Poultry. And then we bring in even our grains, um, uh, cornmeal and different flours from Bears Mill, which is a, uh, a water powered mill that's been around since the, uh, the 18th century. So uh, that's, that's, if it's ever been the identity of any restaurant that I was involved with, it, it, it is here at this, at this restaurant. And we're, we're proud about that. Boy, that's exciting. Even the mills. So are you getting uh, wheat flour that is yeah. from even the, wheat that's yeah. grown locally? Well, the, some of the wheat is grown locally and some of it is sourced. Like, for example, they're famous for their spelt, uh, spelt oh, wheat. Yeah. Yeah. But they source that. Some of that gets sourced in. And I don't know exactly all the logistics. And I would 
don't want to lie to you accidentally, but some of it uh, does come from uh, surrounding areas, and but then some of it has to come from from farther out, Midwest. But uh, but yeah, they they make bread flour and cake flour, and like I said, cornmeal, and they do blue cornmeal, and uh, it's it's uh, the spelt flour as well, and we use that in our in our, in our house breads that we make here, uh, amongst other things, and. Uh, it's a really cool story, you know, about stones that came over from France that like have a lower temperature when they grind, you know, so it doesn't denature the protein in the wheat. So, you know, when you see, you know, they 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 explain all this to you, like when you see it re-enriched on flowers these days, they have to re-enrich it because of the modern processes and all the heat that's involved in extracting uh, the flour from the grain. And whereas the old methods were were better obviously because they didn't hit those temperatures so they didn't so so it is so much more nutrient rich i mean that's you could do a whole podcast just talking about about that aspect of it but you know again the the benefit of partnering locally is that you're you know anyone can bring in a case of pineapples you know what i mean uh, from yeah. from wherever and cook with that and that's fine and there's nothing wrong with that and some some operations have to do that but you know to, to be able to taste, you know, that term terroir about like the, uh, the land that you're on is it's, first of all, it's, it's, I feel like it's a responsibility because then you're partnering with your local farms, you know, you're supporting these, these communities and they're, you know, this is, this is the land that we're in, that we live on, that, that we, that we come from and, and that, that we're also eating, eating the bounty of that. And it's, I just don't think, I, I just think it's irresponsible to cook any other way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to work your way around the seasons a little bit. Uh, but when you take the some of the fruits, some of the berries, for example, that um, are coming from across the country, they can be delicious, and they tie back to what the weather was like when you were picking it. And on really sunny days, you can actually taste that photosynthesis, yep. putting more sugars into the into the fruits. But they also have to um, pick them um, early enough so that they'll do some of the ripening on the trucks. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is kind of hit and miss. It's, it's, uh, it's great when it just all works, but when, uh, when you, and then if you're getting, even if you're getting some local fruits at the, in, within the season, um, you're, you're not putting, you're not using a gas treatment of any sort. You're not necessarily chilling them real fast, but they don't last as long too. You've sure. you got to get yeah. them and prepare them and they're going to be delicious, but you want to do it in a few days. You don't want to do it three weeks Either. later. That's another interesting point. I, I don't know. Are you f- familiar with Frog Hollow Farm in California? Yeah, sure am. So Frog Hollow is like, you know, considered maybe the best stone fruit like in the country uh, without without any question, I the best that I've ever had. And, you know, one of the things we don't grow a ton of, even though there is local fruit in Ohio, is we don't, you know, we have a, there's like a cherry tree and a peach tree on our farm, but we don't sort, you know, we don't produce a lot of fruit. So we do bring in uh, fruit um, and Frog Hollow is one of the, one of the farms that I, I love to, to, to partner with um, and they grow the best. Uh, and the, their whole method is they age, they, they, uh, they ripen their fruit on the tree. So that's, you get a, you even get a dr- dramatic different flavor, difference in flavor. As you, as you mentioned, some, some uh, fruit producers will, will um, ripen their fruit like on tables or in, on racks and warehouses. Whereas, you know, on the tree, on the vine, you get a much more significantly sweet and, and full flavor from from your fruit that way if it ripens on the vine so they have a variety of pears at frog mm-hmm. hoggle farms that i don't think anybody else has and when i used to be closer to there i'd buy a case every chance i get and uh do you remember that have you ever tried that their pears uh, i've i've bought i've bought pretty much everything from frog hollow farms over the years 
They're, they are wonderful. And I can't think of his name right now. Farmer, not Farmer John, but Farmer. Uh, he's got bib off mm-hmm. overalls he wears all the time. And he shows up at some a few farmer's markets in the Bay Area. But he's a great guy. I actually did a podcast with him one time as, as well. But yeah. that's what I, I just, it's one of, people talk a lot about tasting how wonderful food is. Uh, but it's just funny to me. I mean, wonderful, fresh and local and so forth. But it's it's interesting to me that you happen to mention them because I I know they're one of the places when I've tried some of their fruit and I think oh my gosh I haven't had anything it's, like this this is fantastic one of the best yeah and and and, and you know that's it's it's not the cheapest fruit in the world but that's for a good reason you know to do anything excellent you know it takes time and and they do they do a wonderful job for sure. It's it's another area I want to get into sometime is talking about the fact that really good produced product like that sometimes is best uh, frozen or canned as well because they if it could take that really quality in the peak it's it's better than some of the fresh that is uh, otherwise uh, not hitting at the right time you know and right. Make that same argument for like San Marzano tomatoes, right? I mean, like they're incredible, you know, the best in the world, and those are canned, you know. So, um, so I, mean, I also there's some also really wonderful even canned tomatoes there in Ohio, though too that somebody like Red Gold or some of the others that are uh, that are doing a good job with uh, some of some of that product as well too. Here in peak season, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, when you when you're doing this and and now you're interacting a little bit with you know the farms you know you know what's unique about them how much of that communications is getting through to your customers uh do you put information on your menus or do you have people show up and oh, across, you know one information from about where wherever yeah. they're coming from yeah and there's a there's a in addition to all the local partners that that I mentioned earlier uh we even there's there's quite a few of uh small local farmers that'll even just stop in and like we had a there were some uh german catholic uh, farmers that came in that had a had just this incredible squash uh, at the end of the season um that that just brought us all these different varieties some I had never seen before and then so we ended up saying hey so what else can you grow and they brought me these incredible sunchokes that they grew. i've never seen more beautiful sunchokes so i mean it's just like this area like continues continues to surprise me with how much it's producing um but yeah we do we do i will list on a menu especially uh on an item that has a, a local uh, uh partner on there like winter's meats uh all, all the beef as i mentioned or or you know specifically from sycamore bridge and then on the back we do an entire list uh, on the back of our menu of, of, you know, 20 or so of our kind of, um, most important or, or, or highest sourcing volumes from, from a list of those, those different partners. You know, that's, it's just great to be able to do what you're doing and be able to keep track of, of the product like that and, and be in the middle there of, of communicating it. But now I'm thinking, so this guy comes in and he's got this squash that you think, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. So how does that make it to the menu? Are you sitting down saying, okay, now what am I going to do with this? And then you have to put together a recipe and and then add it to the add it to the menu? Yeah, I guess, you know, when you've cooked for for quite a while, you know, you've seen the seasons and especially when I've I've worked with farms, as I said, for kind of like and not to say that i've cooked with everything but like you know you see the cycles you know you and you see the you know squash and pumpkin you know they're they're all 
as many varieties as there are, they're related. You know what I mean? The same way that you see, you might, you may see dozens of varieties of corn or potatoes. And, you know, if you're a chef that's been cooking for a certain period of time, you know what to do with corn or potatoes or squash, you know, so they'll bring you, they'll bring them to me and, uh, you know, I'll immediately uh, have ideas. And so, you know, I do try not to repeat myself as much as possible, but when, when they bring great, product it's not so much about that as is just really tasting it and seeing what 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 different nuances it has you know the sugars versus you know how a butternut squash is versus an acorn squash or the that you can eat the skin on a delicata versus summer squash varieties and you know what i mean so you know it's first thing we do is we cook it and we taste it as it is and then we start to think about like what we can build around on that you know yeah you know one thing i think about when i come back to the midwest especially approaching this time of the year uh, is finding some way to get a hold of morel mushrooms. I don't know if you're ever able to capture yeah. some of the local morels and get them into the menu. Absolutely. Yeah, they get really expensive. Um, you'll see them in the local markets for like $50 a pound. But yeah, foragers will bring them around. Um, I, uh, you'll see the the, the golden ones um, quite often. And actually, we, we had a, uh, a pretty wet uh kind of late winter uh recently here and so we're, we're expecting to probably see a pretty good morale harvest um uh this season uh but yeah they're one of my favorite mushrooms and uh foragers will have them and uh then then some of our mushroom partners will will have them as well we're, we're partnered with guided by my guided by mushrooms and they're a company out of Dayton that grows uh all their mushroom varieties in-house and we we take about 30 pounds from them every week and use them all over the menu. Mushrooms are one of my favorite ingredients in the world. And then I'll, I'll bring in wild mushrooms from different parts. We did um, had some black trumpets from Oregon uh, recently. Um, we'll do porcini. We'll do morel. We'll do you know uh, uh, wood ear things like that. Um, but uh, that's a, that's a that's a fun part of the year when you can actually go out in the woods and find them. You know. Oh, I know. I, and I didn't really know that you could do morels very well um, commercially. I suppose you can. But it's hard. I, thought, I thought you had to go out and go to the woods. Yeah, it's they, they they die quickly for sure. It's a challenge. But if you bring them in and wash them and 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 uh, get using them uh, in different applications, you can you can definitely make good use of them. I knew people that used to try to find different ways out to the parts of the woods where they'd hunt mush morels because they didn't want anyone to know where their favorite patch was. And, <laughs> I believe, and and you could you could fill up a, a gunny sack of or feed sack yeah. or something. On a trip to West one time, I came across um, a patch of chanterelles that were, I mean, it was like, it must have been 40 pounds. Uh, It was incredible and took every, took, well, not all of them, but I took most of them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're making me, you're making me hungry. So, (laughs) but in, in putting that together then, are you writing up um, a fresh menu every week? Um, no, it's not. I, I don't change the entire menu every week. Uh, you know, as a um, we, you know, as a standalone, we I do change the menu probably every week to two weeks in small, uh, small ways, small, small phases. So, uh, and it really it just for me, it just depends on kind of what's selling and what's kind of coming up in season. So I, you know, I won't I won't say, hey, I'm going to roll the spring menu on you know April fifteenth. Well, I'll, you know, it depends on the, on what's happening with the weather, depends on what's happening from the farm. And, you know, because I really do, I, I, you know, I meet with our farmer, Katie Bensman, uh, who's a huge part of this operation and, and grows some of the best produce I've ever, I've ever been involved with on any, any farm to table restaurant. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about the seasons to come and then I'll plan the menus around that. I'll say, you know, what are we sure that you're going to be able to source for me for the summer, for example? And then I'll, you know, 
uh, the, the chefs and I will, will, will kind of sit down and put our heads around, well, well what are we going to do with asparagus? What are we going to do with summer squash? What we do with tomatoes? What we do with melon? So on and so forth. Spring will be, you know, fava beans and and also asparagus and um, uh, nettles and things like that, you know, um, and just uh, trying to get our eyes on like how much of each thing we'll we'll have from the farm and the farm product always gets the priority. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the process. It's, it is organic, but I I. I I will leave the items on the menu for more than more than a week at a time for sure. But then as, as the, they start to dwindle down or we start to see like, you know, the season tweaking, we'll definitely make those adjustments. So when you sit down with farmer Katie and you kind of look at the, what she's going to have in, in the farm uh, for available for you, do, do you give her suggestions and saying, Hey, why don't you grow this for me? Yep, I do. And uh, it's funny you said that we just uh, the chefs and I actually just had our uh, our meeting for spring with her uh, a couple weeks back. And, uh, you know, this is uh, this is my second year with with the company. But, you know, the hotel's only been open since May. So um, this is my this will be my third season coming through with Katie. But, you know, the growing operation changed from pre-opening for the hotel to the, the first year of that. But, yeah, so this is our our first year where we kind of got to have wish lists with her. Um, we also looked at things uh, this season for the coming season, like maybe, you know, produce that didn't do as well as we hoped or something that maybe we had too much of. Um, so we have, you know, multiple food and beverage outlets within the company that we can kind of like, you know, redirect those those resources to. Uh, we also offer farmers markets here occasionally during the during the summer when we're in peak produce. But, um, yeah, we're able to make suggestions uh um, and kind of tighten the focus a little bit this year for kind of exactly what we want to control. But, you know, what, what I've tried to do, and I've said this before is, you know, she grows a lot of things beautifully and really well, but I'll, I, I don't want to tell her you grow this and here's my menu. I want to say, you know, you tell me what you're going to grow. And then I write my menu around that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exciting. And then one other thing back to just the the meats that you're getting, so you've got a story with the the meat suppliers as well, and you're getting uh, what is a local processing that's that's able to provide you. Yep, it's just minutes from us here. So it's a Robert Robert Winners and Sons. It's a, one of our biggest partners and our best relationships here. Uh, so yeah, they they do all Black Angus beef and Berkshire uh, pork and all parts uh that you can imagine, and they they process lamb for us as well. That's um, that's another thing that that. Uh, that, that we do on a slightly smaller scale. There's a Fort Laramie uh, land that's grown by Dr. Paul Hunter. Um, it's called his farm's called PH Farms, and he he raises uh, this incredible lamb. And it's it's a small operation, but we bring in maybe uh, maybe one lamb every other week when we bring in a whole lamb, and mm-hmm. we bring uh, head to tail, and it's a great experience for the cooks and the chefs. And then we process that, and then we we run a couple different lamb uh, features w- w- with using lamb but from and winners processes that for us but um but they yeah we were doing dry aging in house um from them as well so um the prime all prime black angus uh, bone in ribeyes um uh, and then uh, also uh, new york strips that are prime and then we we um we'll dress them with cheesecloth and uh cabernet uh wine and then dry age them in house for 45 to 60 days uh and uh, amongst other things pork chops and you know uh, you know, pork belly and uh, every every other uh, veal bones for demi stock and things like that. So, uh, but yeah, we 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 bring in quite a bit from them. Yeah, well, the Berkshires and the and the Angus and and one thing I think about in your part of the world is that it'd be 
pretty hard to be totally grass fed. Uh, yeah. you, you've got some seasons where uh, I assume that most of that's at least getting some sort of corn finish on the, on the cattle. You're right about that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, my personal preference, I, I know that there's great grass fed beef out there. Uh, and yes, like, uh, winners, they, they start them on, on grass and finish them on, on grain. But I mean, I don't, I haven't had grass fed that I think is as good as grain finished. And I know all the arguments about that, uh, and all that's well and fine, but the, the, the end product is the, is, is the most important piece of it. So I, I actually prefer that method, um, uh, over, over a pure grass fed. Well, I've had, I've had good experiences both ways too, but I'm sort of like you, if I'm doing a roast, you might as well do a grass fed. It's fine. Uh, you know, right. if you're putting it in the slow cooker with some other sauces and everything all day long and, you know, but if you're going to be having a steak, uh, I, I can almost always taste the difference if it's you know, sure. got some, got some corn in the ration. For sure. Um, yeah. But, uh, well, I, I really, really like what you're, what you're doing when you, one thing that when I think about this, I mean, you talk about the specialness of the production of the consumers, the care of the communications of the things that you're doing. It's not the least cost system, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, there can be a more industrial approach to which much of the food system is that's not getting the local processor and so forth. So your your costs are higher, and so I mean you you've got to recover that in the menus too. So it's not necessarily, I'm guessing, uh, something that people can afford to come every day to your restaurant, but oh, they, maybe more special occasions. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, we that's something we work a lot on uh, because of where we're at and uh, where we're at in the community. We want everyone to be able to, to come and eat and we, we're not prohibitively prohibitively expensive at all but you know it's not it's not cheap as you said uh, it's not a cheap operation for sure but i mean you know you you pay for what you get so uh yeah we we're we're, we're, we're careful about that but that's another benefit of, of sourcing locally as well so i mean you know the other issue is just you know the 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 post-covid conversation on food prices everything's more expensive these days so that's sure. that's a but we have to be careful and and cautious and intelligent about our utilization about what we choose, about, you know, uh, how much we, we source at a time so we don't have waste and repurposing things. But, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a constant balance. Uh, the financial piece of being a chef is, is one that a lot of people don't think about, uh, but it's, it's one of the most important for sure. So uh, we, we, we try to be, uh, have, always have cost in mind and, and always want to make sure that we're offering a great product to our guests at a reasonable price. Um, but the, the, the best possible experience is the, is the priority for us for sure. Well, and the and one other thing, I keep saying there's just one other thing, but I'm thinking now to make this whole picture complete is pairing it with a beverage. Oh uh, yeah, and to to what extent you're able to use uh, local beers or wines or even unique non-alcoholic beverages to go with these great meals. Sure, we have a great uh, beer and wine cocktail program here, um, and a lot of our cocktails are locally inspired. Uh, we did tours before we opened of local distilleries and uh, local breweries, and we're partnered with them as well as a local program to to, to source great local beers from Dayton, Columbus, Cincinnati, and, and, and distilleries for the same for 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 gin and bourbon and vodka. Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, great local product here, and great focus on that. I've, I've been seeing kind of a frontier too on the non-alcoholic side of right. making uh, some really, really interesting cocktails that sure. just, uh, for those that are, you know, avoiding co uh, avoiding alcohol. 
So, yeah, I think that's interesting. I think it's important. I think that's good to, to, to have those options for people as well. Yeah. Well, you have a lot of options. Yeah. Let's just, uh, I want to wrap up in a couple, couple things. First of all, um, let's go back to the fact that if somebody wants to come and enjoy dinner with you sometime, uh, what's the best way for them to know what you're doing and how to reach you? Well, I would say to, to look at our uh, website, hotelforsalesohio.com. Uh, we're also all over social media. So Silas Creative Kitchen uh, on Instagram or Facebook or Hotel for Sales Ohio as well on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we, we take uh, reservations directly through Open Table, um, or you can call us directly uh, for us to help you with that. And reservations for the hotel as well. Um, you can call us directly for that, or you can make the reservations through the website. And we're pretty, we have a pretty good uh, social media presence that will keep you apprised of menu changes and special events and holiday features and things like that. So, you know, we've touched a little bit on how much things have changed and in a lot of ways improved. You know, there's so much talk about how things are worse than they used to be in the old days. But I think as far as uh, restaurants and local food and so forth, it feels better in many ways to me now, because like I say, we can go to all over every single state in the United States and a lot of other countries as well. And many counties all across, you can find some somebody doing some really interesting things with um, localized, oftentimes localized food supplies, but very engaged farm to table chefs. Uh, I wouldn't say like yourself, because I think you're exceptional. You're doing some wonderful work, but there's, but it's coming. So that's happened in the recent past. Um, if you look ahead, how, how do you think this might either be continuing or look like, say, five years down the road? I mean, you're, you're probably going to still be in the business, but what's, okay. what's, what's your vision or your hope for how this track looks, again, five, ten years down the road? Really big question, uh, but it's a good question. I, you know, I, I like to see, like I said earlier, not everyone can cook like me, and I'm great. I'm so grateful for that. Like, you know, this was a very special opportunity, a very special operation, um, and those exist in the world just like more casual operations exist. Um, you know, so what I like to see is is local production and and, and clean production. You know, like I, I worry about supply chain with product where you don't know what you're getting and that's always been my concern and that might be like a black back black box technology kind of fear but you know i want to make sure that you know i can go and see like i have here uh, with all of our local vendors that you know if, if if i'm cooking chicken that it's that it's an excellent product and that it's handled properly and it's clean uh and it's raised without antibiotics and, and additives and all these things and the same thing with our beef and our pork and our vegetables and you know like I said, like, you know, I'm able to do that. Not everyone is, but, I, but, you know, the more that you're seeing kind of, as you mentioned, the farm to table approach and, and this local approach, um, I think people are starting to really understand, uh, you know, the, the concept of farm to table has been around now since, since the eighties, uh, at least, uh, in America, uh, as an idea. And, uh, it's, it's definitely more commonplace. And I think that local communities are, are, are trying to, uh, kind of look at the old ways and and kind of look at like you know a more direct and local approach to to cooking and to sourcing and they see the advantages of that. Also, the the population is more educated now and more aware of the dangers of you know chemical additives and you know um, uh, supplemental ad additives and things that are that are that are prepackaged and, and and not good for you if you don't know where it's being sourced from. So you know I hope to see restaurants 
continue to kind of grow and evolve around uh, more local sourcing and local production for sure. You know, as you say that, it, I'm just reminded that uh, there continues to be issues on country of origin labeling. And for some reason, meats kind of excluded most uh, produce. You can tell what country it came from. Like, you should be curious. I don't think everybody does this, you know, have the same standards necessarily. But you... Um, but you can't find that out yet with uh, with meat products. It can, you know, the country is not identified, and it's something the industry has resisted. Like in your case, though, cool, which is the acronym for country of origin labeling, could be county of origin labeling because there's absolutely no doubt that you can. People could drive to the farm that, <laughs> that has the has the Berkshires and the Angus that you're that you're processing there well, and putting in your restaurant. Like all, all the chefs that I've ever worked with and, and come up with, they, they understand. It's like, that's why you always see chefs just so involved in that process. Like, so, you know, obsessive about, you know, because you, you don't have to do a lot and be a creative genius if you have great product. I mean, yes, you need to know how to handle it properly and treat it properly and serve it uh, deliciously. But like if you, you know, that's the whole point of, of sourcing great product, you know. So being fastidious and, and obsessive about where it comes from and, and, and how it is what it is and what it is specifically uh, is is the path to great cooking. Well, I tell you, I thank you for what you're doing and your customers do. And I hope this continues across the country where we have chefs that are proud of what they're doing and working with farmers that are proud of what they're doing and consumers that are proud to support them and enjoy it. So I I really appreciate that conversation. And, and I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Well, I want to thank you very much for having me. And uh, I enjoyed it very much too. And I uh, hope, hope to do it again sometime. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 